Okay, a couple things. As you walk in tonight, everybody grab one of these, hopefully off the table. Anybody miss one? These are little questionnaires. We want to have, okay. You want to pass them out? Raise your hand if you need one. Donna's going to walk around and hand them to you. Uh, they're just things for uh, future Element U stuff. Uh, write down any thoughts you have about Element U. Uh, is there a better way to present information to you in the future? What would what could we do to make them better? And are there any subjects you think it'd be good for us to cover at a future Element U? And I'm going to apologize up front because I'm probably going to go long tonight. I have no videos tonight. I am just going to be talking at you. Yes. So um, if you want to, oh, congratulations, by the way. So your job if somebody walks in that door is to give them one of these. Don't fill it out. No, it's not what I'm congratulating about. You got, what is it, Sandy and S, Firefighter of the Year, something like that? See? Oh, look at me so humble. He's like, I can do Oh, no, somebody walks in, hand him one. Don't let him get away from you. It's your, it's your job. You're in charge of that. I know it's a tough job. All right, uh, so we're just going to get started. Hey, hey there, aisle lady. Yeah, I'm going to strap you in. So we're going to do all right, uh, so this is the last element you. Uh, hopefully by the time we're done, you won't have any questions at all because I will have answered them all. It'll be amazing. Uh, but uh, we are going to jump right in and start because uh, I do have a lot to get through. Uh, tonight I'm going to try and do what a lot of people refuse to do. Hey, Christian, when we're done tonight, I need to talk to you. Don't let me forget because I'll totally forget. I know I need to talk to you too. So I'm gonna... Okay, all right. Uh, sorry, that's just totally going to mess up the video. Hello. Anyway. Uh, I'm gonna, we're going to look at uh, some of the biggest problems with the Christian position. Uh, I constantly, today, you're reading article after article by certain pastors who left Christianity uh, because they couldn't come to terms with the problems that they say are within Christianity. That tends to actually get a lot more press today than you know, all the delinquents who actually give their lives to Jesus and come to him because you know, it's a lot more interesting to read about the people who love Jesus and now say... They don't. Uh, personally, that bothers me for a couple reasons when pastors leave the faith. Uh, the first, my, my reaction to them is usually anger. That's the first thing I usually get because I want to shake them and say, if your faith was so fragile, then why did you become a pastor to begin with? Why become a shepherd over people if you hadn't wrestled through some of these questions and dealt with some of these issues? Why inflict yourself on other people? I really almost find it reprehensible in the character of these people to do that. And the second thing, after I get over my anger, it starts to break my heart. Because my anger cools down, I actually feel bad that they never lived, loved, or followed a God who is bigger than the three pounds of flesh between their ears. Because our God is a gigantic God. And so at Element U tonight, we're going to give you some answers about Jesus that is bigger uh, than this class, bigger at our attempts and to answer all these questions. Because when we don't have an answer to the question, he is still the answer. And I'm going to go through a lot of stuff. I'm going to be reading my notes a lot because I, got a, I was really busy, had a lot of stuff, so I didn't really, I wrote these, so they're really good. But I'm going to be reading them a lot as we, as we go through this. Um, first objection that we're going to cover that's kind of an easy one for us is this idea that miracles contradict science or faith contradicts science or something like that. You know, Big Bang, evolution, all that kind of stuff. Uh, Bill Nye and Ken Ham just had a debate recently. Millions of people watched this debate. It's all about the origins of the universe. Where did it come from? If you actually watch the debate, what's really interesting is none of them really, neither of them answered the question. 
they all just kind of talked about what the other person believed. They didn't really answer the question. They both had their heads stuck in the sand. And what we have to understand is that we as Christians, what we hold to first and foremost is a view that the world exists and functions by the grace and power of Jesus Christ. And so as we go farther into the digital age, science will put forth more and more theories as facts when a lot of them are still actually theories. What we have to remember is that our God makes it function. It all actually works the way that it does because God has already figured it out. Uh, A lot of scientists today are like monkeys pushing buttons in the space shuttle. You know, because, hey, what is this thing? It's all cool, shiny buttons. They're pushing all these things where it wouldn't even be there if God had already put it there. So that's what we're kind of like, a bunch of monkeys today doing this. So as we walk through this stuff, what I'm calling this is a larger framework. Because I'm not going to answer the questions per se right out. What I'm going to give you is a larger perspective of each of these questions that will help, hopefully be able to help you to answer even more questions that come about than just these simple ones. So every one of these, I'm not going to answer directly. I'm going to give you a larger framework of the questions. So... I want me to put this in perspective uh, because I think that some of the science and faith and all these questions that go hand in hand, I don't think all of them can actually be answered this side of heaven because there's a lot of things that we don't know. But I can put it in perspective for you. Uh, scientists today to agree, uh, agree that our universe has about 100 billion galaxies in it. Okay, that's a lot. I don't know who has the time to count, but apparently 100 billion galaxies. Uh, the estimate is that each one of those galaxies has about 100 billion suns in them. And when you get to the bigness of galaxies and the bigness of the universe, strange things start to happen. Like we have things called neutron stars. Neutron stars have such strong gravitational pulls that they collapse in on themselves. And so you have these stars that weigh like several hundred million tons and they can fit within a teaspoon. And so there's just crazy things when you get to the vastness of the universe. You have things like light. Light comes from suns in the, in the form of uh, particles called photons. Photons travel at the speed of light. It takes most photons about 12,000 years to get out of a sun to get light going anywhere. So uh, speed of light comes out of there. Now, if you were standing in the street and a car was barreling down at you at 20 miles an hour, and you look back at that car and you said, I'm going to outrun that car, so you have a top speed of, say, 10 miles an hour because you eat too many Twinkies, okay? So you're running, the car's coming at 20, you're going 10, so how fast in the end is that car coming at you? 10 miles an hour. Exactly. You know what we call that? Newtonian physics. That's Newtonian physics right there. Okay, really simple. You all went to school, and most of you missed that on the test, apparently. So uh, this is the idea. Object in motion stays in motion unless acted upon by an outside force. So we're taught A plus B equals C. Now, when you get to something like light, light is strange. Light doesn't follow any patterns of anything else. Light travels at 670 million miles per hour. If you were to stand in the street and you were to run at one mile an hour, two miles an hour, 10 miles an hour, a million miles an hour, light still comes at you at the speed of light. It doesn't follow any principles that we know. In 1915, uh, Einstein was perplexed by this, how light doesn't follow any of the rules. And he says the universe is not static. Light is not A plus B plus C, and yet all the science we base today is on making everything static. It has to be static for us to draw conclusions, and yet even Einstein says it's not static. 
When you get to the largeness and the bigness of the universe, it starts to bend and it starts to warp. The bigness of the universe defies comprehension. And when you get to the smallness of the universe, it does the exact same thing. For the longest time, we thought the smallest thing that we could find was called an atom. Atoms are tiny, itty-bitty little things. Everything's made up of atoms. If you want to see an atom with your naked eye, you would have to be one billionth of an inch tall because they're tiny. They're tiny. It's kind of like as the earth is to an orange, so an orange is to an atom. Now, if you wanted to count uh, all the atoms in a drop of water, it would take every person on the planet 20,000 years counting one atom per second. That's how many atoms are in a drop of water. It's amazing. Now, if you had the tools in the shed in your backyard to take apart atoms, you will find out that atoms are made up of neutrons and protons circling around with these electrons. And, you know, they circle several billion times a second because they're very, very busy. Now, in 1890, a scientist named J.J. Thompson said, what if we could build a machine that could take apart an atom? What if we could crack that thing open and we could see actually the basic building blocks of the universe? You know, break down the thing that makes up all the things, and then we can know what everything is really all about. And so they found that you can actually split an atom down into different pieces, and these were called quarks. Atoms are made of quarks. Who knew, right? So there you go. Oh, wow, quarks. They split that thing. So you split the thing. You can split the thing, split the thing into Okay, so that, that, that's what they did. Now, today, they're saying they have identified at least 100 subatomic particles. Okay? Uh, these are, these are everything smaller than an atom, and they are calling these mosons and bluons and leptons. I like to call them all soons because there's all these names that always have ons at the end of them. Uh, this list of small things is what's called quantum physics. Now, in the subatomic realm, things get really weird, just like when you get to the largeness of the universe. They have found that one quark can disappear from one place and reappear in another place and not travel the distance in between. They have also found that quarks are capable of what's called simultaneous duality, that they can actually be in two places at the same time. In 1949, uh, Bell's theorem came about where they said if you can split an atom in half and you can put one half in New York and one half in Los Angeles and you were to take the one in New York and then reverse the spin of those electrons, all of a sudden the one in Los Angeles would reverse at the exact same time. And they have no idea why that is. Uh, you have other subatomic particles called leptons. Now, leptons exist as individual subatomic particles, so they're individuals, but they have never found them existing alone. They always exist in some type of community, but they're all individual particles. And so brilliant scientists today are saying things like the universe at its core is unpredictable, that it's some type of relationship of energy. The universe is made up of energy, and it's uncontrollable. You've heard scientists now use words like personality, personality. Energy holds all things together, and it has a mind of its own, and we cannot conquer it. It's beyond what we can comprehend. Scientists today are starting to sound a lot like people of religious faith because they are not understanding all that's going on. And so when someone comes and they say things like, well, miracles contradict science, well, the first thing you can say is, of course they do, because that's the nature of a miracle, right? Miracles are going to, you know, because they're supernatural, they're, they're not natural, you know, and, and this is something that our Christians are all okay with. Um, I've got a lot to get to, but, but let's just take the story of, say, like Jonah and the big fish, okay? Jonah and, and, and the whale, but it's probably a big fish. Anyway, everybody always gets caught up in the fish. What kind of fish was it? How big was the fish? What was the fish like? How, was the stomach, stomach big enough to actually hold somebody? Is it real? Allegory? Is it metaphor? What is it? And a lot of times what we do is we get stuck in the middle of these things and we don't look at what God's really trying to say to us in the midst of it. And a lot of people say this is the problem with Christianity. People want to walk around with their head stuck in the sand and we don't have the answer. We just say, oh, it's a miracle. 
miracle, oh, we don't have to understand it. That's not necessarily true on one hand, because we do need to understand it. We need to understand what God himself is doing, and that God himself is supernatural. Um, our God is a God who does miracles. Jesus actually said the story of Jonah is a real story. So I'm going to trust Jesus, since I know he's the maker of the universe, so I'm going to say, okay, he did it. Today, what happens in Christianity, as we look at all the science and the stuff that's going on, is we start to eat a little bit of humanism with our Christianity. And today we say, well, obviously some of these things can't be real because it doesn't make any sense to my human reason. Again, miracles are not natural. They happen supernaturally, not naturally. And so we say, if there is a God, he can do miracles. A humanist will look at the scriptures and God and say, well, if, if I can't control it, if I can't put this in a test tube, then therefore it's not real. God has the power to do anything he wants to do. And that's not us sticking our head in the sand. That is just saying God made everything. And if he wants to step in and do something supernaturally, he can. And so today what happens with miracles is the church even tries to take things like Jonah and we read it humanistically. Like we say, okay, well, in 1851, true story, there's a whaling ship, there's a couple sailors on the whaling ship, and they fell over. One of them got swallowed by a great big fish. Three days later, it shows up in the stomach of a fish, and he's still alive. He says, thank you, it's really stinky in here. You got me out. This is wonderful. Right? And so they find this guy, and we say, oh, look, it's natural. It can happen. But if we are a people who are only looking for natural explanations for everything in the scriptures, we will cut God out of, the script, or out, of, out of our lives, out of the entire picture. When we are people who simply approach the Bible, taking the miraculous out, then we don't need a miraculous God. And we are a people who stake our faith and our lives on a miraculous God. When God no longer becomes in control, only nature, we start to lose the idea of who God really is. And what you really have to look for in the book of Jonah is the biggest miracle is not the fish. The biggest miracle is that eventually 100,000 bloodthirsty, vile Ninevites turn to the one true God. That is the miracle in the book of Jonah. I mean, it is easier to believe a guy got swallowed by a whale than these guys get converted by a Jew who hates them and they hate the Jew back and yet they all want to follow that Jew's God. And if we approach the scriptures from a standpoint of a God uh, who is sovereign and in control, that's more than a miracle of the giants were down 9 to 0 and they came back and won. I mean, that's not a miracle. The giants just decided to hit the ball one day, right? You know, it's, it's that God actually does miracles beyond what is natural. And maybe someday there will be some miracles that we see in the scriptures that science does get to explain. It doesn't mean that everything else is explainable. And so when someone says to a Christian, well, you know, faith contradicts science, it doesn't. It doesn't. What you have to understand is that science is man's interpretation of the universe. Okay? You can take theology. Theology is man's interpretation of God. I, I don't think that nature and faith or nature and God contradict each other at all. I think there are times where theology and science might because they're both men throwing things on top of you know, all the stuff that's out there that God made. But I don't believe that nature and, and uh, faith ever actually contradict. And so we must be a people who believe that and hold to that. That's like the idea of a larger framework. So miracles contradict science. Of course they do. Of course they do. That's a miracle took a long time to talk about that, and I guess it wasn't really that hard. I just could have said that, right? Okay. Um, I had a, had a whole lot, a bunch of objections to go over, but I really got to get to this one because this is going to be the longest one that we look at. It'll take most of our time. And again, larger framework, 
Larger framework, larger framework. This is the problem of pain. Uh, the, the idea that sovereignty of God and, and God sanctioning the murdering of children in the Old Testament and things like that. You know, why, why is there places on the planet where there are droughts and little kids die when God could just send some rain and some water and just take care of that? Uh, this problem is probably the biggest issue that people ask about Christianity. Why does God allow evil? Why does he do that? Uh, you know, where does evil come from? Why is there suffering? Th- this is the problem that uh, God is all good that God is all-powerful, and yet evil exists. That is the problem right there. And so the conclusion is either God isn't all-good, or he isn't all-powerful, or God doesn't exist. That's the conclusions people come to. And so uh, some people say, well, maybe God wasn't able to figure out how to get rid of all the problems, and this then eventually leads to open theism, that God's not really in control. He just kind of doesn't really see what's happening around him. Or because, you know, if God was good, he would use his power to eradicate what we all deem as evil. Uh, and so the, really the problem comes to, oh, I didn't put this down in here. Dang it. I think it's in your notes, though. Um, the, the problem comes down to the question, oh, there it is. I did put it in there. Ugh. Want to slide it? Just want to slide with me. Is is what what is evil? Uh, there are two kinds of evil. Uh, the first one is called moral evil. Uh, moral evil is sin like murder, rape, abuse, terrorism, genocide. That is moral evil. And then you have what's called natural evil, and these are things that cause suffering and unpleasantness. Like uh, every human being dies. Dag nabbit, this program. Technology hates me. And okay. It does, I'm telling you. Anyway, uh, uh, every human being dies, animals suffer, you have natural disasters like tsunamis, earthquakes, they all wreak havoc, Uh, you have vehicle crashes, diseases kill millions, Uh, freak accidents occur. And, And I think today this problem seems a little bit bigger to us than it ever really has been before. And I don't think that there's more evil today than there ever really has been. But today we have a different relationship to evil because we have access to everything instantly all over our planet. We have the Internet and news media and things burden us down. You have a 100 to a 1,000 Facebook friends, and all of a sudden you're carrying all of their burdens when things happen to them in their life. Uh, you have your church. You have your gospel community. You have your family. You have your work. You have the people in your neighborhood. You have your city, your nation. You have all of these things, and it comes to an overload point in our lives where we feel like everything is a burden to us and we can no longer carry it and so we see all the problems and all the burdens of so many people with jobs illnesses and divorce and loss and what happens is we usually get all the evil in people's lives before we ever get the good and our society is, is advancing, and as we advance, we expect certain things to work out right and better. Like, if you have a baby today, you assume that baby is going to survive, that it's, that it's not going to die, right? You assume that you're going to live to a good ripe old age of 70 to 100 to they're going to freeze my head, and I'll come back in a 1,000 years when i got a robot body. Like, we're all, we're all thinking that something's going to happen, and we're going to almost live for, forever. And you go back a couple hundred years, and you wouldn't expect the majority of your kids to make it. It was just natural for them not to make it. You wouldn't expect to live, you know, 40, 50 years old. I'd probably be dead by now, which I'm surprised I'm not, actually. So anyway, um, you know, and that's the thing. Now, John Owen is a theologian from the 1600s, lost all of his kids except for one in childhood. One of his daughters made it to 21 years old, and then she died. Now, if we had that happen to us, we would say, God, why? You're not good. Why are you doing things to us? We would lash out and be angry at God. But this is what he says. He said, if we would talk less and pray more about them, things would be better than they are in the world. At least we should be better enabled to bear them. 
That's the idea of where our focus is. Today, our focus has become on us, on advancing all of our comfort. And in this time, the focus is all on God. Now, why doesn't God eradicate evil? Uh, there are some bad answers to this, and there are some helpful answers to it. And I'm going to give you the bad answers first, and then I will give you the helpful answers. I stole a lot of these from John Frame. His book is actually in the back of this, so you can actually pick up his book and read it if you want. But the first thing I will tell you, if you meet someone who is struggling with pain, some type of evil that is in their lives, you should not start giving them an argument why God is allowing this thing in their life. That is not going to help them at all. Okay. Romans 12:15. Paul says, Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. John Frame calls this the wordless witness. He says sometimes the wordless witness is the best witness. And so sometimes if people are in a lot of pain, you just sit there and you go through it with them. Later, maybe a couple weeks or somebody loses a child, maybe a couple years later, you can go through them and talk about all these answers with them, but not right at the top. Okay. Uh, so we have, we have bad answers For evil, uh, you will hear Christians trying to come up with excuses to let God off of the hook for all kinds of things that are going on, so much so that they want to even change the nature of who he is. But we cannot change the nature of who he is. We've got to read the scriptures and see who he actually is. So bad answers are things that say, well, God's not sovereign. It's not God's fault. He would have stopped it if he was able to, but he wasn't really able to. All that does is it diminishes the sovereignty of God. Uh, Scripture is clear that God does allow and is sovereign over things that we consider wicked. Uh, Genesis 50, verses 19 and 20, But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Some people think it's better just not to have an answer and run away, but we think it's good for you to have answers. So, I'm going to give you the the bad answers for this. And the first bad answer is that evil is not real. Some people just say, well, evil doesn't really exist. We just deny its existence. Christian scientists do this. Scientologists, with all their goofiness in a way, actually uh, do this. Many Eastern religions do this. Now, Buddhism, on the the other hand, says all life is pain. That's life. You're welcome. Welcome to it. That's Buddhism. Uh, Alvin Plantiga talks about a psychological condition uh, where some people see the entire world around them as just actually an extension of their own mind. And so there's this college professor that he knew of that had this condition. So he went and he talked to him about this condition. They had a long conversation. And eventually he says, so why is there evil in the world? You know, if, if it we're all just in your mind, why did you create evil in the world? And the guy couldn't answer the question. The guy kind of irritated. So Alan Pantiga left on the way out the door. He gets very sarcastic and says to a guy on the way out the door, you better be nice to him because if he goes, we all go. Right? Uh, it's easy to respond to someone who says pain is an illusion because we all experience pain. Just pinch them or stick them with your fork or something. They'll know, oh, there's actually pain. Uh, Second uh, bad answer is that God is not really all-powerful. That God is weak. He is unable to prevent these things. Uh, Lawrence Kushner, who is a rabbi and a Kabbalist, wrote a book called Why Do Bad Things Happen to Good People? And his answer is that, well, God wasn't big enough and God wasn't strong enough to stop it. But Scripture clearly teaches the opposite of that. Psalm 115, verse 3, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Isaiah 55, verse 11, God says, So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. God always accomplishes what he intends. Third bad answer is that this is the best possible world and evil is necessary for its perfection. Okay? This is like the best possible world that God could have made. And if he tried to make a perfect world, it would have been a logical inconsistency. And so it couldn't have happened. So basically what they're saying is God is not able to make a perfect world. It's a bad answer to the problem of pain. 
Fourthly, uh, this is uh, evil is the result of free will, uh, and God is not accountable for it. Now, this is the most common defense that you will hear people use that I think is not actually a very good answer for it. Uh, this is the free will defense. I'm going to take you on a little side excursion a little bit about free will to help you understand what free will is and what it is not and what element believes we possess of free will and what that looks like uh, because humans want to be in charge of every little thing in their lives and every little thing that they choose, every little bit of our nature, and then we want to blame God for all the evil in our lives. And so, well, which one is it actually uh, of those things. Um, are humans absolutely free or are we contingent upon something else? And so there's two... Bam, okay. So there's two things in this. Uh, the first one is called libertarian free will. Okay, libertarian free will is this idea that our choices are free from the determination and constraints of human nature and free from any predetermination from God. Like, okay, well, what does that mean? Okay, so what that means is that a free will theist holds that libertarian freedom is essential for moral responsibility. That all of our choices, we get to make all of our choices, and we are not burdened by anything, including our own desires, that pushes in a direction to make our own choice. Because if we were burdened by anything, you know, whether it's our sin nature, whether it's desire to eat that cookie, you know, then we don't really have free will because we have something pressing upon us. Now, I would tell you none of us are truly free. Because we all have desires, we all have a sin nature in our lives, we all are, have things calling us towards certain things. None, no human being is truly free. We cannot see the entirety of the universe and everything that is going on. All of our decisions are predicated on the things around us in our small scope of a view. I don't think we really have libertarian free will. Um, and so uh, then you have what some called a, a compatibilist freedom. Some people call this determinism. Uh, compatibilist freedom sounds much nicer. <laughs> <laughs> compatibilist freedom is a freedom that is consistent with God's sovereignty. And what I mean by that is that uh, this view it affirms what man freely chooses and what God has determined that he will choose coming together. Now, what, what that simply means is something like this. So you have God. When God looks at time, he stands above time. He is not confined to it like we are. He is not burdened by all the aspects of time. And so when God looks at time and history, he sees all of history as a completed event. Some people call this foreknowledge. Some people call it determinism. But God sees all of history as a completed event. And so every decision that you will ever make in your life is already, in a sense, determined in God's sight because he sees all of history as a completed event. And some people say, well, that, God can't really be that way because then every decision I make, he already knows. That means I'm not really free. But what if you made the choice? And God stands above time, and, and that means it's determined. And so it's this whole idea that men is free will. God, in a sense, God stands above that, and they come together, and we call this a compatibilist freedom. They are compatible going hand in hand with each other. Uh, free will is affected by human nature, and man many times can't choose contrary to his nature and his own desires. And so this view acknowledges that man is a moral free agent who makes choices due to the effects of the fall, all contained within the doctrine of what we would call total depravity, that man's nature is corrupted, and he cannot choose what is opposite of his fallen nature. We always want to do what is best for ourselves, not always necessarily what is good for God. So libertarian free, uh, free will is associated eventually with things called open theism that maintains that God does, does not know and God cannot predetermine the free choices of man. Uh, this is the idea that God only in his omniscience and really smartness sees what man probably will choose and then has to act accordingly. What it does is it makes God always reactionary to human choices. God is not truly sovereign. God is bound by our free will. 
And so God is not actually free. That's a libertarian free will. So number four is that God gives mankind that this, this idea that you know, God isn't in charge and that it's man's only man's free will that causes all the evil. What it says is that God gave mankind a free will that he, not, he, he could not control to our benefit and, or his glory. That's the idea behind it. And that is not a view that the scripture holds. The scripture holds that God is sovereign. He is above everything. You know, we're responsible for the evil in the world and not him. But we are still responsible for, you know, we're responsible for those choices. Uh, libertarian freedom with this definition, according to scripture, as I talked about, does not actually exist. Again, Genesis 50, verse 20, Joseph says, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. In Acts 2, 23, uh, Peter is preaching. He says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So this is what God says is going to happen, and it comes about. He says, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And so what this does, it doesn't take away from the blame of the human being, but God's decree is laid out behind the wicked choice of men. This wasn't an act of libertarian freedom, but of compatibilist freedom, God working things out together because God's plan always works out. If you read the book of Job, where eventually does Job's suffering come from? God allows it. It comes eventually really from God's hand. Uh, The free will defense is, again, the most common defense people like to use, but I don't think it really works because it places God in a box and reduces his sovereignty. Uh, C.S. Lewis, the free will defense was his defense. I even put a quote in there from, from John Calvin because a lot of times people say, well, then God has to be responsible for all a man's evil. No, God doesn't have to be responsible for evil because the idea of determinism, how God stands above time and allows us to make some things and God gives us good things and we do evil things with them, which I will explain in a minute in another one of these things, but... My goodness, there's so much you have to do. You can ask questions at the end. All right. Uh, John Calvin wrote this. He said, The Lord had declared that, every, declared that everything he had made was exceedingly good. Whence then comes its wickedness to man that he should fall away from his God? Lest we should think it comes from creation, God has put a stamp of approval on what had come forth from himself. By his own evil intention, then man corrupted the pure nature he had received from the Lord, and by his fall drew away his posterity with him into destruction. Accordingly, we should contemplate the evident cause of condemnation in the corrupt nature of humanity, which is closer to us, rather than seek a hidden and utterly incomprehensible cause in in God's predestination. See, so even if you're a good five-point Calvinist, reformed guy, compatibilist freedom makes sense. Number five, golly, this technology. Boo. It hates me. All right, I'm just going to keep, oh, there we go. Okay, number five. Evil is necessary for people to mature. Um, the people say we need evil to build our own character. Uh, and th- this is in this idea, you know, wrestling with evil can help us to grow. It can. Uh, we just talked about persecution last Sunday, right? So this whole idea that evil can actually help us to grow in our lives—it's clear in the scriptures. But all suffering does not produce better character. He pushes all the way back to the garden. Adam didn't need evil to have good character. What Adam didn't need was evil nor will we need it in eternity. Uh, C.S. Lewis, uh, one of the things that I really disagree with him about is he actually says that we need evil to keep the balance. That is totally untrue. Uh, Number six, uh, people say, well, God is the indirect, not direct cause of evil, so he's not accountable for evil. What this does is this makes God like a cosmic mafia boss where he just kind of sends out hitmen to do his job and go, well, I didn't do it. It was that guy over there. Go talk to him. 
number seven is that God is above the law, so he can do what seems evil to other people. Uh, this is what we call ex lex. This is above the law. Okay? Uh, the problem is that God's law also reflects his character. You read through the scriptures, you understand God has a moral law, and it's not just a law for his people. It also reflects his heart and who he is. Now, God does have prerogatives, ones that we don't. Like every human life on the planet, it is his. He can do whatever he wants with it. That's why I say, you know, Noah and the flood, since that movie's out, and apparently they have rock people in it, whatever, it's not in the Bible. But, you know, the, you know and they can take everybody at God can take everybody at once if he wants to. Human lives are his. It is his prerogative. But you read the scriptures, and in general, his laws reflect his own perfect character. Number eight, non-Christians have no right to question whether his God is both all-powerful and all-good. That's a horrible response, because all it does is attacks non-Christians instead of trying to answer their legitimate question about how can Christianity can exist in light of their logical problems of evil. All right, so, we're shooting all those down. Uh, there are actually, I think, good ways to approach the problem of evil. And don't, please don't take any of the things I say right now as me being flippant or being mean. I'm just giving you some answers in a larger framework. And some of these things you would not say to somebody who's in the middle of a whole lot of pain. Okay, So I'm just giving you the answers and don't get irritated with me. Um, I think the Bible does leave some room for stuff. But on the other side, uh, I think that we have, have a sufficient framework in the scriptures to understand. So first good answer is number one, bad things do not happen to good people. Good and bad things happen to bad people. Okay, So it's not what Lawrence Kushner said. Oh, bad things happen to good people. We're all bad people. Okay, We don't really deserve good to come who us? But God gives us good anyway. You know, the most biblical sense is why do good things happen to bad people? You know, Jesus, of course, is the only exception, completely good, and yet he went to the cross. Second uh, answer to this, I think that's a good answer, is the problem of evil is actually an argument for God. It is not an argument against God. And the way I say that is you've got to think of it this way. Uh, Christians, when you have you know, problems and evil and pain in the world, what Christians have to do is come up, for, up with an answer for that evil that's out there. Atheists, on the other hand, have to come up with an answer for good and evil. Both, right? Because on what basis can an atheist say that anything is inherently good? On what basis can they say that anything is inherently evil? There is nothing. There is nothing to be able to do that with. You know, um, I... All human beings are universally outraged at moral evils when they take place on our planet. But people who don't believe in a Christian worldview are borrowing from a Christian worldview to say that they are evil. And I was talking to a friend of mine recently who uh, says he's agnostic or atheist. He can't really decide what he wants to be. Uh, and and he, so he's talking to me about how sin doesn't exist. And I said, so uh, if your child was raped, you know, is that, that's not a sin? He goes, well, that is. But, you know, and, and it's because, you know, well, so then all of a sudden you've got a framework to work with. You know, you just said, this, well, what makes that wrong? You know, if you're an atheist, there is no God. There's no reason why that is wrong. It should actually be okay. And so what, what atheists want to do is they constantly want to steal from a Christian worldview. So saying that there's a problem with evil is actually an argument for God. Number three, God is not obligated to explain the problem of evil to anyone. And that's actually true. Now, I think he does throughout the scriptures, but he's not obligated to. John Frame calls this a shut-up defense. (laughs) Uh, You look at that Job, for example. Job repeatedly asks God, why, 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 why is this happening? And God finally thunders back and doesn't answer Job's questions of why. 
God just simply asked Job some questions, and these questions are all meant to show the goodness and the graciousness and the wonder of who God is. It's to show Job the character of who God actually is. And so faith, by definition, requires trust when we don't have all the answers. Number four, uh, God is the standard for what he does, not our own sense of justice. God is the standard for what he does. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 20, and I'll read something with you that's really kind of interesting that goes with this. Um, You've got to understand, when God deals with people, he is always fair. That is justice. He does favors of grace to everyone because God is always good. Uh, God is fair even if he does a favor for someone and not somebody else. Uh, like, say, you have cancer and your friend has cancer and God heals your friend and not you. There is nothing wrong with God doing that for him and not for you because he has different plans and purposes in what he does. Uh, Matthew 20, verses 1 through 16. We're just going to read this through, and and this is interesting how Jesus puts this. Uh, For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And he said to them, you go into the vineyard too, whenever whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, Why do you stand here idle all day? And they said to him, Because no one has hired us. He said to them, You go into the vineyards too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. So that's what he promised the guys in the beginning. Now when those hired... uh, when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received an denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden uh, borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. We must understand first and foremost that everything belongs to God. Everything. We belong to God. Every bit of our lives. And the problem is a lot of times people, they will demand justice. They want it immediately, but only in whatever circumstance that we want it. I want justice. I want it now. I want you to fix this here and now. People always assume that we have looked at and assessed the situation rightly. And, and I tell you, a lot of people should cry out for anything but swift justice. Anything but swift justice, because we all deserve God's wrath. Our universal, our universal human need is for God's grace and mercy and love and forgiveness. And that is what Jesus came to give us. Number five. And five and six go together. Uh, and so I'm going to hit five and then hit six in the middle of this and try not just to make you mad when I just talk about five. Uh, God uh, oversees evil, but he cannot be blamed for it. See, Scripture teaches both of these things in this. So you've got to hold them in, in tension. Um, some people say God ordains evil or God causes evil. Words like ordain and cause, they've got to be qualified. You have to understand that God is never guilty of committing a moral evil. And this is the idea. This, this becomes a really difficult teaching about the problem of evil and pain. And really, as Christians, we shouldn't want this any other way. Because it would be terrifying to us if God did not control evil because that would imply that evil forces could resist and overpower God. This is not a Hollywood movie. 
Okay? This is not a Hollywood movie. This is the God of the universe who made everything. And when it, uh, like a terrible calamity occurs, say like a 9-11, it is not enough to merely say, oh, you know, well, God allowed it. God oversaw that. You know, even though people say, you know, trying to let God off the hook, they're trying to protect God, they're not protecting him. They're, they're reducing who he is when they try and let him off the hook for certain ways. Uh, Amos 3.6, does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? Isaiah 45, verse 7, God says, I form light and I create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things, which goes to number six, which is that the logical problem of evil, including providence, involves mystery requiring that Christians maintain doctrinal tension in biblical proportions. This is the idea that there are some things we will never understand completely. You have like the Trinity. Okay, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Like I told you the first week of this class, you know, understand it. I mean, make it up. We didn't, you don't even understand it. The Trinity is something that's so far beyond us. You have the idea of what we call the hypostatic union, that Jesus came and lived. He was fully God and fully man. How does that go together? We don't really understand completely. And so for us, it seems incomprehensible to us that you have these propositions that God is all-powerful, that God is all-good, and yet there is evil. How could those be true at the same time? So a lot of people tend to like accept two of the three, but not all three want to explain away the third. I mean, this whole idea of compatibilism that we talked about is the belief that the statements A and B describe providence and that they are true and that they all go together and they are not a contradiction. Uh, let, me, let me give you an example, I think, of how this works. So you look at the life of Joseph. Okay, you have God uh, gives Joseph this dream when he's a young man. And, you know, you're going you're gonna to rule, they're all going to bow down to you. So God gives Joseph a very, very good thing, this dream. What does Joseph do with it? Sins with it. Goes and lords it over his brothers. Hey, look what's going to happen. You're going to bow down to me. Sweet, wonderful. Why don't you do it now? Come on. You know, and what do they do? They get mad at him, and they sin against him with it. Now, God gives him a good thing, knowing Joseph will sin with it, knowing his brothers will sin with it. And what eventually happens is after all these people sin, Joseph gets to Egypt, spends all this time in jail, and eventually rises up to become the second most powerful man in that country because God did something good in his providence, allowing, and some people even say bringing evil by giving him this good dream. And in the end, God brought about the providence that he wanted to bring about the saving of this entire country. That is the idea of how this logical problem of evil can actually come together. You look at the death of Jesus. This completely illustrates it. I mean, you have Jesus, God in the flesh. We kill him. Who's responsible for that? We are. But we are told this is what God was going to do. I mean, Genesis chapter 3, God says, my son's coming. He's going to die. This is the providence and the plan of God. Who's responsible for his death? We are. God sent a good thing. Jesus, what did we do? We sin with it. This is the idea that God still then takes and brings something wonderful about it. We'll talk about this a little bit on Sunday, actually. But that God brings something very good out of that because he takes and he saves his people with that. It is not illogical, but human beings cannot completely, exhaustively understand it. Um, another one is that... Uh, the logical problem, uh, wait, I did that one, right, right? Yes, I did. Okay, so the next one is um, God uses evil for a greater good uh, because the ultimate design of God always is that God is going to glorify himself. He makes all things work out to his end. And so the Bible does not give an exhaustive, complete list of, every, of all the evils that God uses for good purposes, uh, but some of the ways include displaying his grace, displaying his justice, judging evil, saving sinners, sometimes shocking sinners to the point that they repent, uh, disciplining Christians, vindicating himself. 
The idea is that the experience of Christians is that God often uses suffering as a catalyst for remarkable spiritual growth. Okay. Um, the next one is there is no problem evil before the fall. There will not be one in the eternal state. Uh, this is the idea that conf- uh, Christians can always confidently expect the day when God completely vindicates himself, uh, gives his people these resurrected, glorified bodies. Uh, this is why if you go to a Christian funeral, it is meant to be unique. It is not to be a place where we wail and mourn, and, oh, what's going to happen? What's going on? Oh, God. We... It's this idea that we have hope. We have hope because that's not the end. That is not the end. We have great hope in these things, that God reverses all suffering, and the result is even greater joy. Uh, number nine, uh, God uses natural evil to illustrate how horrendous moral evil actually is. And the right response to this thing is always repentance. Uh, you know, what, what is a person's emotional reaction when they're diagnosed with cancer or a child dies or, or these horrendous things happen? You know, it's anger, it's pain, it's, it's what's going on. Is our reaction to something like that as intense as when somebody sins against God's holiness? Not nearly as close. Natural evil wakes us up to the need to repent of our moral lives. I'll give you an example. Luke 13, 1 through 5. It says, There were some present at that very time who told him, that's Jesus, about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he, Jesus, answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them. Natural disaster. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Jesus is using it as an example of of this natural evil to bring about a repentance in people's hearts to understand it. Number 10, the most significant problem of evil is actually the cross. When you understand that it is Jesus' death dying for our sins, that's, that's the biggest one. I think that's the most outrageous evil in human history is the murder of Jesus. I mean, so how do these statements actually all, how are they all true? How do they all go together? God is holy and just. Human beings are sinners who offend God's holiness and deserve his wrath. And yet God, three, forgives and justifies sinners through faith in Jesus. How do those things actually go together? Again, it is this tension that God has made and Jesus forgives us. Uh, Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And I know these, these are not really answers. When someone's in the middle of pain, you go up and you just say to them because it's not going to help them at that moment. So what does a biblical approach to the emotional problem of evil actually include? And so uh, first off, uh, people who are suffering... Oh, you're going to get two at once, I think. Okay. Uh, people who are suffering are typically wrestling primarily with the emotional problem of evil, okay, not the intellectual problem of evil. And so it's naive to think that you have all the answers. You're going to help them in the middle of that. And so, you know, like, like a little girl, she falls down, scrapes her knee, runs to her mom. Mom, help me out. It, it, her mom's not going to look at her and go, okay, look, let me give you uh, all the physics lessons about falling and what happens when you do, you know, what God may be teaching you about falling. What the little girl wants is she wants a hug. Mom, hug me. I'm just in a whole lot of pain. She wants to come from her mom or dad. And so a lot of times when you run into people with a problem of pain, it's an emotional issue. It's not an intellectual issue. Most of the time when it's an intellectual issue, it's people who want to have a bone to grind against Christianity. 
right? So sometimes that doesn't help because they just want to argue with you, but usually it's the it's this emotional problem. So secondly, um, people inherit, re, inherently react to suffering poorly. They react with hopelessness and helplessness and abandonment and anger and confusion, and those are all normal. And so when you run into somebody like that, there are certain things you do say and certain things you don't say. Okay, so don't say and do certain things. Uh, number one, don't go up and say, this must be happening to you because you committed some great sin. Do not be Job's friends, okay? That's not who you want to be. Secondly, don't focus on the loss of things instead of people. Like if somebody's house burns down, their kid dies in it, you don't want to be like, oh, bummer, you lost your house. Okay? You don't want to do that. That's horrible. Um, don't speculate about maybe you know, some problems or some problems that the suffering may be sparing them from. Oh, well, you know, your child died, but he may have grown up to be a serial killer. So, hey, maybe it's a good thing. You don't want to say things like that. Okay? If somebody has a fatal disease, you don't say, well, everybody's got to die from something. You know, at least you know what it is. I mean, that doesn't help them. You really also don't want to say, I know how you feel, because a lot of times you don't know how they feel. What's important is that you actually care. Uh, you, you don't say things like, oh, you aren't spiritually mature until you're happy about this. You don't say things like that. You don't say, Romans, Romans 8.28 says, God works all things together for good. People don't want to hear that in the midst of their pain. Don't assume that they are seeking an answer to the question, why? Many times people just want somebody to be there with them. Um, and don't, especially don't say you're continuing to suffer because you lack faith in God, because that's just dumb. Okay? There are certain things you should do and certain things you should say. Uh, you show them that you care for them by spending time with them, by loving with them, by listening to them, by uh, tangibly demonstrating the gospel over the long haul. Uh, I think you share specific reasons for hope. Maybe there's a news article or someone's working on some new cancer treatments, and you can show them to these people and say, look, hey, something's coming right around the corner. This is a good thing. I think you always say, God is good, God is good. You may not understand, but God is always good. Uh, you can also help them to focus on somebody else's needs. It's always good to get your eyes off yourself and onto somebody else. That can actually even be therapeutic to do that. Um, I, I think you can also say God is with Christians and genuinely sympathizes with them in their sufferings. I think you can say that to people. Uh, you also understand that false guilt often accompanies suffering, and you must help them to understand that Jesus died to take away our guilt. What you want to do is help them to know God better in the midst of their suffering. And you pray for them and with them because only God's going to provide the true comfort that they need. Uh, The gospel applies to intellectual and emotional problems of evil because Jesus is the only one that is ultimate comfort. And these problems, I think, will continue until Jesus consummates everything with the redemption of his people. Uh, The right response is to always affirm what God says in the Bible and trust him, even if you cannot exhaustively explain everything in it. Um, I am at 50 minutes, but I have some other things I just want to get through, so just go with me, okay? Um, Here's a question. Um, Why doesn't God make himself more known in the world? How about people who have never heard of Jesus? Again, I'm going to give you a larger framework. I'm not just going to answer that question directly. I'm going to give you a larger framework of that question. Uh, These are like, couldn't God make himself more well-known? If he really existed, wouldn't he do that? Now, uh, I think Paul talked about this, uh, not Paul in the Bible, Paul Mills talked about this. Uh, Natural theology is the process of showing that God exists without even appealing to the biblical revelation. Uh, It's simply nature and reason. And so there are good arguments that God does exist. Uh, Number one, the origin of the universe out of nothing. The universe is here. Uh, We were caused by something, and so it's here. Secondly, the fine-tuning of life. Uh, Just that there's actually life on this planet is an amazing thing. Third thing is the objective moral values. When believers and non-believers all call something evil, 
there has to be an overarching moral value in that that actually proves the existence of God. And then as Christians, you have other things. You have uh, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, which is very important, which is historically accurate. And then five, you actually have the experience of God in people's lives. Now, a lot of people today say God should make him more self more well-known than just say those five things so everybody can't get around him. Like God could inscribe on every little molecule made by God. But the problem would be you have to have a molecular microscope to get that. So it wouldn't really help until like today. you know. Or God could have put a big cross in the sky that says Jesus saves. But then people would have been like, why is it up there? How's it shine? How's it hanging there? Well, what's going on with that? You know, we'd make all kinds of reasons to go look at it and try and figure it out. Um, atheists try to blame God for unbelief in the world because if God existed well there wouldn't be any unbelief because God made it impossible to disbelieve Um, which again is taking God and trying to put him in their little itty bitty box and so you can use those five arguments for God but again it's, it's not enough and so what do you say now, a lot of free will theorists say things like, oh, it's the free will defense. You know, God hasn't done it because he wants to give people free will. But let me go with that just for a minute. And let's, let's just run with that, okay? Uh, how many people want God to show up in a different way to them? You know, I want God to show up in lightning. I want God to show up in this. I want God to talk to me and burn a bush like he did for Moses, but not scorch all my shrubs. I just, you know, I, I want God to do, do something in this, you know, lightning from, from the sky. And so say God does that. Okay, great. God exists. And then all of a sudden pain strikes your life or something happens to someone you love. Well, no, no. God only really exists now as he becomes and he does this. How often would God have to be beholden to man before we're like, okay, I guess I'll actually believe in you. And see, and this is the thing. It, and, and this is why this is, is a horrible, horrible uh, a horrible, horrible argument because what it does is it takes a difference between belief in God and faith in God. What it says is we just want everybody to believe in God. No, we want everybody to have faith in God. Paul Moser is a Christian philosopher, and he says it like this. He says, it makes little difference to God whether people believe that he exists. Rather, what God is interested in is building a personal, loving, saving relationship with us. It is not simple belief. He wants us to believe in him. He doesn't just want us to believe that he exists. James 2.19 says, even the demons believe. What good did that do them? There is no evidence that God bringing about mere showmanship will bring any type of relationship with him. Did God's wonders of the plagues in Egypt and parting the Red Sea and giving Israel an entire country, did it ever stop them from running off into apostasy? No, it didn't. And you can't say this to the person asking the question, but it's a dumb question. It really is a dumb question. You know, on the other hand, what about all those people who never hear about Jesus? Well, when people ask me that question, I usually say, well, is that going to make a difference to whether you believe or not? You know, if, if those people over there never hear, is that going to make you not want, want to believe? Are you contingent upon that? Because typically that's just an excuse. And as we say a lot from a Reformed perspective, we trust God to save everybody who is his. Everybody that's his. Okay? We are sent. We proclaim the gospel everywhere. We trust everything in his hands. And, and I think that there's going to be more people in heaven than we ever imagined. I really do believe that because it's in God's hands and not ours. And we believe God is good. And if he is good, then we always trust him to be good, period. Now, uh, the next question that comes along with that is this. Well, if God cares, why are some people consigned to hell? And this might open more questions than I'm trying to answer. But again, larger framework, okay? Uh, again, in the scriptures, Jesus talks about hell. Uh, you know, whether whatever your view is, is on hell or not, you know, Jesus talks about it, so it's a place. So I think it's a good question. But you've got to start first off with the idea of why is hell a bad thing? That's where you've got to start. I mean, we dislike the notion of hell because we, because we simply dislike it. 
And because we dislike it, we, we, we judge whether it's right or wrong to do based on how we feel about it. Uh, how about this? Um, adultery, okay? Adultery brings people pleasure. Is it a good thing to do? No. No. You're all like, I don't know, is it? No, it's not. You know? Okay. You know? Uh, hell, hell brings pain. Is it therefore wrong to have a place like that if it really exists? You know, that exists. J.P. Morwin says that instead what we should look at more is whether hell is... Uh, more of whether hell is morally just and morally, a moral, morally right state of affairs, not whether we like the concept or not. So you have to understand, God is the most generous, most loving, most wonderful, most joy-filled, most grace-giving being of the universe. God is full of compassion. He is just, and He is moral, and He is pure. And what God does is not based upon American sentimentality of tolerance or love as we define it, and not really until modern times does anybody really have a problem with the concept of hell. I mean, if you go back and look at the Old Testament, and you look at something like the story of Noah, again, because it's in the theaters, and I get to make fun of rock people, okay? You know, Genesis 6, 8 says, but Noah found favor, and that's the word grace. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, even though Noah was not perfect. You go to verse 5, and it says, the Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. And that seems like the critical factor. Our hearts are evil all the time. Our hearts are continually evil. And yet God rescues Noah, whose heart was wicked, whose thoughts were evil. Not until the verse after where it says God showed favor, God showed, showed grace to Noah, does it actually said that Noah was a righteous man. His righteousness only came after the grace of God. You look after the flood. What does Noah do? Plant a vineyard, get drunk, naked, pass out in his tent. Something really freaky happens with his kid. We don't know. But God knew all of that before he sent the flood, before Noah was ever born, before God did any of that. Noah doesn't deserve God's grace or salvation. None of us deserve God's grace or salvation. God knows the hearts and the minds of every single person who has ever lived and is now living and who will yet live. And if God looks at people and he ordains salvation and leaves others without rescuing them, whether he does that or not, there will be reasons for that. We don't know, nor can we know or should we know. And I think in some way people's election brings glory to God. And we will discover why they bring so much glory to God. And if there is a hell and somebody ends up going to hell, that idea will still also bring glory to God. In some way. It's all about him. And so we don't criticize God for it because God and really has no obligation to rescue anybody. He doesn't have to do it for any of us. Now, a lot of times people say, you know, in a reformed perspective, well, well, am I saved? You know, I believe in Jesus, but, but, you know, did God pick me? If you believe Jesus, you're saved. Okay, if you believe in Jesus, yes. And so many people ask this question. They're so worried about this idea. I mean, you wouldn't believe in Jesus if God didn't love you and call you. Anyway. The Bible is clear that even our most righteous acts are filthy rags in God's sight. Isaiah 64, verse 6 says, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. That is said of God's people. That is of God's people. It's not of the pagans. Nobody deserves to be spared hell because all sin must be punished, and we can never do anything near enough to cancel out the sin we have committed. Imagine this. How could anybody, for example, cancel out the damage done by somebody raping a virgin? 
them spending the rest of their life in jail isn't going to make that act never happen. Paying a bunch of money is never going to make that act never happen. Once a rape has been done, it can't be undone. There is no restitution that can heal that emotional trauma of that damaged life. Only God, who is the great physician and the great healer, can make something good out of that taking place. Only God can heal that damage. And so you trust him in that. As for the desire of God that all should be saved, again, God's desires are always holy. They're always perfect. He does not torture people in hell. Our desires, on the other hand, are always selfish, always sinful. We desire to be justified in God's sight. Always, but always on our own terms. And what we have to understand is our justification in God's sight is only because God has justified us. Only because of the gift and the grace of Jesus. Only the righteousness of Christ imputed to us do we enter God's legal pardon of justification that brings salvation. And I think that God desires humility from us to agree with this verdict and avail ourselves of his means of salvation. God's going to be justified. His name is going to be glorified. And everything in the world, from the apparent random movements of nanoparticles, God has decreed for his ultimate glory. Everything, everything. God's glory trumps everything in the world. And if hell is what we think it is, which I don't actually think it is what we actually think it is, you know, then hell is necessary for God's glory just as much as Jesus' redemptive work on the cross is necessary for God's glory. Hell and the cross are allies, are allies. That's the larger framework that you must understand. We don't get it all. Jesus talked about it. It's in the scriptures. But what does that mean? I don't think, again, this side of heaven, we will totally understand it. But you must understand it is all for the glory of God, period. Um, And this is my last one here. Then you can ask some questions, which will be here all night probably. Uh, Jesus is the chief shepherd of the church. Why is the church so brutal and hypocritical? People say this all the time. Why should I become a Christian when the church is filled with so many hypocrites and deeply flawed people? Uh, there's a book came out recently called Unchristian, and they did research study that shows 85% of unchurched young adults believe Christians to be hypocritical. 47% of young adults inside the church say the exact same thing. I have no idea why that is. It should be 100% of everybody says people in the church are hypocritical. Because everybody is hypocritical. That's the point. So here's the two things. Number one, just because people don't live up to a message does not mean the message itself is wrong. Okay? Uh, Stephen Nordby writes this. He says, at a recent annual meeting of the American Heart Association in Atlanta, 300,000 doctors and researchers came together to discuss the importance of low-fat diets and keeping our hearts healthy. But during mealtimes, they consumed fat-filled fast food, bacon cheeseburgers, and chili fries at the same artery-clogging rate as people from any other conventions would. One cardiologist was asked, aren't you concerned that your bad eating habits will be a bad example? He replied, not me. I took my name tag off. As Christians, you never get to take your name tag off. Never, never. But the prince of hypocrites in a movement does not show the movement itself to be false. Second thing, every belief system, any ideology or movement will attract people who do not live up to it. Uh, you look at Matthew chapter 23. Jesus goes through and talks to the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, and what he does is it's this whole analysis of hypocrisy. You know, verses 2 and 3 in Matthew 23, Jesus is like, you know, they, they sit on Moses' seat and they preach these things, but they don't practice what they preach. You go to verse 4 and 5, it says they type all these heavy burdens on people. Verse 13, he says he calls them hypocrites. Verse 23, he calls them hypocrites. Verse 25, hypocrites. Verse 27, hypocrites. Verse 28 and 29, he calls them hypocrites. And again, these are the religious people of the day. Does that mean that, that God and Judaism was false and wrong? No. 
No, that's not what it means at all. You know, Jesus is talking about a condition that's right next to every single one of us. Dallas Willard says this, Whatever our position in life, if our lives and works are to be of the kingdom, we must not have human approval as our primary or even major aim. We must lovingly allow people to think whatever they will. Because sometimes you're going to mess up. You just are. It doesn't make it right. I'm not saying it excuses you being a, a total dork about everything. But sometimes you will. And you get up, you dust yourself off, you, Jesus understands that he has forgiven your sins and is moving you forward, and you live the life that he calls you to live. That's what you do. And there will always be hypocrites in the church. There's no perfect church. If there was, none of us would be in it. We wouldn't be invited, because we just mess it all up. All right. It's a lot of stuff, I know. And I probably mumbled a bunch of words and messed everything. All right. Um, if you have like other questions you think are really good, write them on that piece of paper. We'll cover them in a, in a element you. Maybe that's the next one we do, you know. Elements, craziest questions, you know, yeah, whatever. So I'm going to pray, because again, it's, it's 8 o'clock, so we're like an, half an hour late, so I'm going to pray and send you out here. Father, we thank you for being a God who is sovereign, who allows us to be a people who can have all these questions and hold all these different views and yet still be loved by you. And so I ask that in what we do, in what we see, that we'd be a people who first and foremost always lift you up, always honor you as God. Uh, always understand that you are always good, even in the midst of places that we don't understand that goodness, and that we would have a larger framework of understanding, not just to have exact little answers to every question, but an overarching view of the greatness and the goodness of who you are, and we can have our eyes focused upon you first, that everything else makes a lot more sense. And so thank you for saving us and giving us grace. Amen.